Um, I've got some pictures of the outside of Westminster Abbey, and uh, that's Notre Dame. Um, that's Westminster Abbey. Um, Westminster Abbey in, in London is an in- incredible example of a, a Gothic, uh, what would be called a Gothic cathedral, uh, using basically after the Middle Ages the new, the new style or the new architecture, which utilized these things called flying buttresses. And for a long time when I was a kid, I didn't really understand what that meant. Like, is that like a flying nun? Um, is, is that a word that, you know, I should giggle at, you know, flying buttresses? Um, but basically what it is, is it's a buttress, which means it supports something, right? And it's a flying buttress because, as you can see, these arches kind of soar up and then go into the side of the building as support. The next one from uh, Notre Dame in Paris, uh, you really can see these things flying out, these flying buttresses that come in and then hold those walls. The idea was the middle, uh, the church in the Middle Ages had a low ceiling. A low ceiling meant it was dark. Um, You didn't have uh, much natural light that could come in. And the acoustics weren't as great. You you just, you kind of were boxed into that. What this invention allowed uh, the architects to do for hundreds of years in this Gothic period was to go higher with buildings, taller with ceilings, that would allow for, for windows to, to let light flood in and for the acoustics to really fill the inside of a chapel. So you can see a, pic- a picture here now of the inside of Westminster Abbey and, and really getting this idea of this is Gothic architecture at its best, that what it conveys is a sense of transcendence, a sense of beauty. It was intentional, not just functional, uh, they used to talk about angels in the architecture. This was intentional for the view of God, that God was other, that God was glorious, and that somehow when we come into this building, this cathedral, we're, we're transcended into that, right? And we're able to connect with a God that is bigger, higher, and other than us. One of the coolest things you could ever experience in terms of beauty is to be in a cathedral like this, where the more modern organ pipes are playing or the more ancient form where you get a choir or a boy's choir that are singing and and actually take in this atmosphere along with the noise. So Kip was good enough to help me get some audio, short clip of audio. And so if we jack it up loud enough, maybe we can all kind of sit into this and get the idea. So again, the idea is you're inside this chapel, beauty, transcendence, the otherness of God, the the grandeur of God. Interesting thing, if you walk out of Westminster Abbey, now Westminster Abbey is where kings and and queens are crowned and where uh, Charles and Diana got married, recent weddings happened, they all happened kind of 
in this uh, abbey right here, entering from the door that would be behind us. But if you walk out of that door where, uh, where all the kind of regal things come in or enter, you'll see a facade that's a bit strange. Um, strange not because it, it's, it's um, different, it's statues. I think we've got a picture. Uh, it's a, a series of statues, and there's some more to the left and the right that aren't shown there. Um, and statues are kind of what you expect from this, this architecture that goes back hundreds of years, certainly going around Europe. But do you recognize, do you recognize anybody in those statues? If you look closely, the second one from the left is Martin Luther King Jr. And that might be the first thing that catches your eyes, just a familiar face. And what you begin to realize is this is not an ancient um, group of statues that have, that have been put here on the facade or the front of the building. It's a rather new grouping going back to 1998. And it's justice martyrs from around the world. It's people that have given their life, uh, I think it's a... Elizabeth on the left, uh, and then you've got Martin Luther King Jr., and then you've got Oscar Romero from El Salvador, uh, the Catholic priest that was a part of liberation theology, gunned down uh, as he was giving the Eucharist. And then on the far right in that picture, you have Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the Lutheran theologian that, that many of us are familiar with, uh, who was killed by the Nazis just days before the concentration camp at Flossenburg, I think is, was the name of it. Um, prison camp was overrun and taken back by the Allies. So you have this interesting grouping of figures, all of them martyrs in the cause of social justice. And so you have this, this interesting tension of being in the building and this, this transcendence and the otherness of God, right? And in some sense, the distance of God. You walk out of the building and the example that's, that's in front of you is really of the earthiness of, of this life, that, that our, our, our symbolism here is that it, it, it spans from the one end all the way down to touching the ground, the least of these, the orphans, vulnerable people, that God goes kind of from left all the way to right and reaches into the soil. The interesting thing is on the sidewalk or really anywhere in London, you'll see Jubilee Park, uh, Jubilee, Diamond Jubilee, uh, streets, placards, all these things, really uh, referring to, to the current queen, Queen Elizabeth II. If I have that right, I'm not a, a British royal person. Um, but she, she's kind of lived through some of what would be called um, uh, Jubilee anniversaries. And so it's interesting that that word shows up all over London. So as we keep this picture here, here's why that's interesting. Jubilee is a biblical concept, comes back in the book of Leviticus, and it was God pronouncing to people that this is the rhythm that's going to happen. Every seven times seven years, we know the Sabbath is kind of the, the seven, right? But every seven times seven years, 49 years, you're going to give a Sabbath to the land. You're going to rest. You're going to not let other people work. You're, you're really going to kind of give a Sabbath to it. Then on the 50th year, it's going to be the year of Jubilee. It's going to be the year of Jubilee. It's, it's, no, um, it's no surprise that when Pete was talking about 
50 and the day of Pentecost, that this, this year of Jubilee or the concept of Jubilee, like everything that God did with the Israelites, was a particular thing, but also a metaphor that carries through spiritually for God's people. So on the 50th year is this year of Jubilee. It begins on the day of atonement, when sins are forgiven. On the day of atonement, uh, the priest gets up and he takes a ram's horn And he blows the ram's horn, marking the fact that this is the day of atonement and that sins are forgiven. Now, Jubilee gets its name. It comes from, the the word is actually derived from simply the word, the Hebrew word for ram. Because this Jubilee proceeds forth from, really, the, the blowing of that ram's horn on the day of atonement. So you get something really interesting going on here, and I think important and subversive, at least subversive culturally to kind of our our norms, and that's that the picture we get of God is this fascinating one where God is holy and transcendent and glorious and beautiful, but God has instructed and made known that, that he cares that his presence wraps all the way down into the soil that he's about the the recreation or the reconciliation of all things. It's God's creation, and it's God's creation that he's redeeming. It doesn't stop at 20 feet in the air. It doesn't only go to one kind of group of people. There really are no limits. God is doing a work here that goes all the way down to the ground, and certainly with vulnerable people, On Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, debts were forgiven. Land would go back to its original landowners. Slaves had the opportunity to free themselves. And so when Jesus comes, what we really see when he reads the Isaiah scroll is that he is basically ushering in, through through his atonement, the year of the Lord's favor. He's ushering in Jubilee, that the captives would be set free. Um, It's a beautiful picture to me. But why, why would you have these people there? Um, why would you do that? That's the question that I think I'm going to address this morning. Uh, the biggest question I've had in interacting for years around justice was why are you making justice so important? And more specifically, um, the question I, I usually get asked is why, why is race, why is that conversation so important? Why are we talking about that? In other words, I don't find it that relevant. Why are we talking about that when we should be focusing as the church on on other things? In other words, more important things. So here's the the first kind of answer I'd give. Um, Why are we talking about race? Why did Jesus talk about the Samaritans? Why did Jesus talk about the Samaritans? Simply because if he didn't, they wouldn't. And obviously in Jesus' mind, the Samaritans needed to be a, a part of the conversation of who he was and what his mission actually was. Uh, if you look at um, Genesis 4.9, which is a familiar verse, you got this argument between Cain and God, and, and the Lord says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't see him. And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, I don't find your question relevant, God. Uh, And I think all of Scripture 
hearkens back to this one phrase and, and is a resounding answer from the prophets all the way through Jesus, through Paul, that we are our brother and our sister's keeper. That there is no place where we can go where we cordon off a certain group and say, that is not relevant any longer to me. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is we talk about this gospel, and the gospel is important and doctrine is important, but we tend to want to reduce it down to what is the gospel. In other words, what is at the heart of the gospel? What is the central part of the gospel? If you reduce it all the way down to the essential element, what is that flame, right? That's when I was in seminary, it was all a reductionist exercise to try and say, what is the true good news or gospel? What's that flame? Missing all the while that flame, that light spreads throughout the whole room, right? The crazy thing about light is it touches everything. The good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus coming into the world, is a light that shines and it fills the whole room. It touches everything. Here's, here's Jesus on himself uh, reading out of John, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world referring to Jesus. And then as long as I am in the world, says Jesus, I am the light of the world. He goes on to give us this call that you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The light emanates out and touches everything. So when people say, why are we talking about race? What they're really saying is, you know, that race conversation, cut it out, is, is here and it's not really relevant to or doesn't belong in our, our conversation about the gospel. In other words, our conversation about the good news of Jesus Christ, somehow we're, we're marking off territory where that light does not shine. That's why you could have Birmingham, Alabama be the most Bible-believing city in America historically and also historically the most racist city in America because we find a way to cordon off and compartmentalize our understanding of the gospel. But that flame, that light, fills the room. What we've done is, um, if you go camping, you know, you get that little reflector that goes around your camp stove. And that little reflector, kind of tin metal reflector, is meant to focus that light and make it um, super hot, right? And, and what we've done in the church is we've created those little barriers, those little kind of side things to focus in our doctrine about the gospel, not realizing that what we're really doing is missing the idea that we're darkening out parts in our minds of the mental, um, the world, the world. The, the landscape, our worldview that we would have of different subjects. And you can say this about anything. You know, why is that relevant? Cutting it out. It's relevant because Jesus is relevant to all subjects. And the minute we pull one out, the question is why? What's the motivation for why we're, why we're pulling that out? And I would also argue back that when people say this isn't relevant, that's not what they really mean. When I preach on singleness, there are married people that feel like it's not relevant, right? When I preach on marriage, there are single people that feel like it's not relevant. I don't know that I've ever had somebody leave the church because I preached on singleness and they're married and they thought that wasn't relevant, so I'm leaving. So when people say this topic is not relevant and they leave, a church or they 
separate a relationship. What they're not really saying is that this conversation isn't relevant. What they're really saying is, um, I feel threatened by this conversation. Or this conversation is uncomfortable to me. They're not actually saying that it's irrelevant. So why talk about race in the church? The first answer was it's part of the gospel. The good news touches everything. Um, Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Uh, Paul saying that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus and has now given us this ministry of reconciliation. That what God is doing in us with the gospel spreads out into all of our other relationships. That's why Jesus says, if you know me, um, you actually are going to treat other people in a loving way because what you do for them comes back to me. Isaiah 58, if you're going to worship me or fast thinking you're going to get my attention, you're actually not going to get my attention doing it that way. It's how you treat other people, the prisoner, the kinds of subjects that the Jubilee talks to, that the atonement is connected to the soil, to the earth, to the messiness, to the sin of life. And that God is in the business of reconciliation and we as the church therefore necessarily are as well. Why do we talk about race? Because it's a part of the gospel. Number two, why do we talk about race or why should we talk about race? Is because it is our history. It is our history in the United States. You can't have an understanding of the United States of America apart from understanding the conversation on race. Um, it's been called America's original sin, and I find that to be rather true. Here's a um, quick shot at how it affects things from a national standpoint. So there's a picture of what's called redlining. Um, Erica, Chicago, there we go. So this is a picture back when the Federal Housing Administration went through all of America um, after World War II, or actually right before World War II, and then certainly into the period after World War II, you had the 30-year um, uh, fixed interest, homeowners, loan. I'm, I'm looking over here for Sean Kent for right language. It's like, it's a, well, the Federal Housing Authority, it's a 30-year loan, fixed mortgage. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, that didn't exist in the Great Depression, by the way. In the Great Depression, the bank could come to you and say, you owe us the balance on your house. We want it today. And it's one of the reasons the whole thing just dominoed. So uh, Roosevelt worked really hard to create a federal housing uh, administration. And basically, as long as you can keep up with your monthly payments, they can't demand the balance on that loan from you. It stabilizes things. But now they're going to loan a lot of money out. Uh, and so they wanted to assess neighborhoods where this was okay, where this was a bit um, uh, unwise, maybe, to loan out that money, and then ultimately to, to mark off neighborhoods that would not be eligible for this new kind of loan because it was too high risk. Those areas were drawn in red, and you can see them on the map here. By the way, this is Chicago. Um, you can see them on the map here. Red-lined districts didn't get loans, and the interesting thing about that is how did you become a red line district? One of the reasons wasn't just economic, it was the demographic of who was there. So if you had immigrants or people of color in that neighborhood, by virtue of, of what that could do to destabilize that neighborhood in terms of the economics, you were therefore redlined. 
So if you were a person of color, you couldn't, the red line followed you. This is what's, what's known as racist policies. Um, we weren't just a country that had racist people subjectively. We have always been a country that has had racist policies. Does that make sense? Federal policies that discriminate based on race. So this is when the white flight happens. This is when the suburban reality is born, partly because of, of freeways, because Eisenhower came back from World War II, saw the Audubon, how the Germans were able to move troops so fast, and we began this great infrastructure thing with freeways, oftentimes putting a freeway right through neighborhoods, which is partly why in recent demonstrations, people are going out into the freeways to shut them down, not just as a way of shutting down a freeway, but as a way of trying to draw attention to, don't you see that this freeway split our community back in those days? We have never had a voice. Is, is where some of that is coming from. But so when you look at Chicago, um, you have two dominant areas. The one below is south side of Chicago. Then the one that's kind of right in the middle is an area around Chicago that went by the name of Cabrini Green, um, just down from Moody Bible Institute. Now, Cabrini Green was one of the first ever experiments uh, in... Um, um, not government housing... Uh, Public, uh, public, uh, public housing project. So the people that showed up there didn't own it. Um, even private people didn't own it. The government, uh, government project, uh, housing projects, the government kind of owned it. And why was the government creating a housing project that, that people of color or, or what came to be largely African-American people when you had the great migration out of the South because of the terrorism and the lynching that was happening there? Um, they, they had them go there, one, because when you're a refugee from the South, you're not bringing a lot of wealth with you. Two, they were being discriminated in the North. It's a big myth that discrimination only happened in the South. There were race riots in Chicago where they burned down whole neighborhoods and apartments where black couples tried to move into an apartment unit. Um, Famous examples where they threw all the stuff out into the yard, out of the window, set it on fire, and you saw a whole row of houses go up and thousands and thousands of people coming and rioting, all with the same message, don't you come into our area. We don't want you here. And so the government, what are they going to do? They didn't know what to do. We'll put those people here and government um, projects. Well, uh, that area about 10 years ago, was privatized and sold off. Um, I, I should have given you a picture. There's only like one or two blocks of the old housing still left. All of it's behind chain link fence. But the bulk of the people in Cabrini Green and the surrounding areas have been moved out. In the meetings when they were privatizing this for urban renewal, there was provisions being made that these people would have somewhere to go. Um, a lot of them have ended up homeless, but if you're kicked out of lo the lowest of low-income housing, the federal projects, and you're on this map, where do you go to find housing now? You go to the other cheapest place, don't you? The south side of Chicago. So you have a tough group of people that are in gangs where they get their identity from that because that's family, all of a sudden colliding into another area that's low income where a lot of people are in gangs, where that's their identity, that's their family. What do you think happens? 
you see a spike in violence, don't you? So you got policies being driven by, by, by terrorism in the South, then racism in the North that won't accommodate it, then um, economics, quite frankly, uh, in the modern sense, uh, and you get a domino effect and you get a lot of violence. So when there is violence in Chicago and there are a dozen people in Bend that, that are on my Facebook feed that every time there's violence in Chicago say, let's stop talking about this Black Lives Matter stuff. Let's stop talking about racism in America or white privilege. Let's talk about black on black crime. And it's a, it's a blocker. It's a, it's a dusting off of the hands. Look at what those people are doing. As if all people of color in the United States are somehow there, and as if those people wouldn't be you or me if our history and our, and our narrative had gone down some of those, those channels as well. And it certainly doesn't excuse us from having the kinds of thoughts that we do sometimes when we see the news or when we read about certain things. Racism isn't about, or trying to end racism, isn't about finding the one or two black people in Bend and that we all go hit their social calendar. I don't know that that would be really easy for those, those two people, um, or 10, right? The biggest part of ending racism, or even talking about it, is, is the reactions in your mind when you're watching the news the reactions in your mind when you're watching the news, to begin to slowly call that out, to understand, to pick it apart, and to walk back some of those prejudices or biases that we all have because we've grown up. I, I gotta move on from this quickly because I've already talked about it too long. Um, the, the net worth gap in America is massive when you say the average, and this comes straight from the US Census, so the average white Caucasian family's net worth versus the average African-American family's net worth um, is, is the greatest gap, and it's, it's in the, the, the hundreds of thousands. Um, and the temptation, I think, in the even, white evangelical culture would be to say, those people haven't worked for their American dream. Those people have been expecting something, or you know, there's a failed program with XYZ, a big part of it is because that granddad and that dad and then that family that didn't have the ability to get out of these neighborhoods that were in some sense economically, uh, economic black holes was because of racist federal housing policies. Most all of us um, can, can at least talk about a story in our life or someone we know where the housing market has been the generator of generational wealth for that family. It's, it's arguably the single greatest factor in building generational wealth in America's history. Real estate, the last 100 years. So what we're talking about, what we see today, you know, have you ever asked the question, how come, how come when you go to big cities, the inner city always looks like this? How come in urban contexts it always looks like this? It looks like that because racist policies shaped the cities to look like that. We might have said we're getting rid of segregation in the schools kind of back in the 50s and whatnot. Our map in America will remain segregated for a very long time because of the deep grooves that we cut into or etched 
kind of into the metal as we went along. Um, our, racia, our racial history is one of the reasons we need to talk about race. Um, this would be a national part of it. Um, I want to show a local part of it. So Kip Jones has been working on a, a documentary, feature-length documentary, um, as his thesis project for getting his master's degree from Killens College. And we have a trailer of Kip Jones's, Ken, Ken, Kip Burns, Kip, Kip Ken Burns, uh, of his uh, upcoming film that will be released in August. But here's a preview. It's astounding to me that as a kid raised in Oregon schools, Oregon public schools, the graduate of Willamette University, that I knew almost nothing about the racial history of Oregon. I was one of those who sort of felt with pride that as I've traveled around the world, around the country, that she and Oregon, we've always been really good to, to minorities. We've had so little prejudice. And yet as I got into these stories, I discovered that we've had as much of a racist history as just about any other place in the country. We've had slavery, we've had exclusion laws, we've had laws that have passed against the black, we've had the sundown laws in communities throughout the area, and yet these are not mentioned in Oregon history. Ceremonies of the Ku Klux Klan were held last night on Pilot Butte, following a parade of Klansmen in automobiles through the streets of Bend. The parade passed south of Wall Street, down Franklin to Congress, and east on Delaware. The parade halted for several minutes at the Klan's headquarters on Hill Street, then proceeded east on Greenwood Avenue and out the road to the Butte. At the bottom of the road, up the Butte, a sentry car had already been placed, one of those standing there was Justice of the Peace, E.D. Gilson, wearing a Klansman's robe. Shortly after the first of the cars reached the summit, the flaming cross, which has been seen on two previous occasions, appeared on the west side of the butte. The cross was lighted a few minutes before nine o'clock and was still burning at 10.30. Don't you think Kip did a good job of that? <laughs> you can read an article that Pete uh, has got for you in the magazine on the way out that'll give a lot more details of what's called the exclusionary laws in Oregon. Um, Oregon was uh, one of the most racist states in the Union. Um, the founder of the Aryan Nation called us um, a perfect uh, refuge site for Confederate uh, refugees, the perfect state for Confederate refugees. Uh, we were the epicenter in the, in the 80s and 90s of the skinhead kind of revolution in the United States. Uh, Portland was, was the kind of the epicenter of that. It talks about sundowner um, laws in there. There's a phrase called sundowner towns. You can get a great book on it. Um, it's called just sundown towns. But it was basically towns that made it very clear if you were a minority that once the sun set, you were, were not supposed to be there. And it was going to be on your own head if anything happened to you. Here's some signs uh, that will give you an example. Um, we can kind of roll through them.
So the interesting thing here is, you know, we were a sundowner town. Not because we were in the south, an old confederate state or something, um, but because of a lot of what was kind of inherently in um, the people that were in Oregon and making the laws in Oregon in that, in that time. I have a friend who grew up in the area, Native American, who remembers coming to Bend and seeing signs in the doors that said, uh, no dogs or Indians allowed. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing because we can say that this was in the past. Kip's thing gives an example, the 20s. In the 50s, there was a lot of Klan activity in Bend. Uh, Oregon, for a decade, had the highest Klansmen per capita membership of anywhere in the country. Uh, one of the most famous signs ever was taken in Portland. So here's a picture of, of Klansmen in Portland uh, having their meeting um, with kids in the front row. Now, the interesting thing is there's two groups here. There's the, the real Klansmen, and then there's a group called the Red Riders. Now, the Red Riders are foreign-born affiliate group. In other words, you couldn't be an actual um, Klansman because you were foreign-born, but you shared two things in common. So you had a, a kind of sister or associate group that, that you could join with. The two things you had in common were Protestantism and racism. Um, this is Portland, Oregon. So we can say, hey, this is old, but if you watched the news just this last week, um, it's not old. And it's not just one guy that goes crazy. Um, it's in March, the Iranian refugee who returned home. I got a picture of this too, to find this on his wall. An Iranian refugee. Um, Muslim and kill you were in his bedroom. Die was on his mirror and hate was on the door. Uh, a day after the election, just east of Portland, three men hit a black woman with a brick and then proceeded to beat her. Um, two months before that, a man on a bike pepper sprayed a black family and screamed racial slurs at them. Uh, and in the suburb of Gresham, a member of a neo-Nazi prison gang uh, ran down a 19-year-old black man with his car, killing him. I was talking to a friend yesterday that uh, is into Harleys. And there's a, a neo-Nazi kind of elitist Harley group out of Idaho that has a white supremacist agenda. And evidently, they just opened a, a bar in Redmond. Um, it's, it's not that this is all past news. It's very relevant. So why do we talk about race? Because it's a part of our history, and it's also a part of our current reality. And if we don't look at it, we're not really engaging reality. Um, uh, well, that was then. Let me just give you one more. Um, this is a CNN article. Uh, there was a, there was a uh, taking down of two statues near Charlottesville. It was a famous battle that was won by General uh, Stonewall Jackson, and he was actually shot by his own men accidentally at the end of, of that, that battle. And there was two monuments there that were taken down recently by that city in North Carolina. Okay? In response to that, what does Alabama do? Um, Alabama goes into general session and makes it state law that no city or no kind of city official or figure has the authority by law, in other words, it's against the law, for them to remove a Confederate monument. In other words, they just went in and, and made sure that they were going to protect all of what they believed was going to be their heritage that way. Um, 
it's a relevant current thing. I think I've told you before, it's in the Alabama Constitution, segregation in the schools or segregation throughout society. They voted about a decade ago to remove that and in the 50%, um, low 50 percentile, uh, it was voted to keep that language in the state constitution. Uh, about four or five years later, uh, it was put in again and that number had jumped into the low 60%, the vote to keep the segregation language in the state constitution. It's not a past issue. Uh, it's very much a current issue. Uh, moving along quickly, the third reason to talk about race or why we need to include this in our conversation about the good news is that when we sin by injustice, um, we have to reconcile that in order to have our relationship with God restored. God said, if you realize a brother has something against you, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come to the altar and give your sacrifice. Interestingly, the word sin is brought up 270 times in the prophets, where God is saying to the Israelites, let me tell you what you did wrong, why you're being disciplined, and that you have to see this, understand it, and repent from it so that we can be reconciled. This has to be addressed so that we can then come back to our relationship. It's no small thing. Uh, Daniel and his prayer, remember, he was too young to have really sinned with the Israelites, but when he's in captivity, he prays, God, we sinned. We have wronged you. We forgot about your commands. Would you relent and forgive us? This need to have corporate confession, I, I, it doesn't matter if, if, if we feel like we're not racist, if we feel like we live somewhere that that is whatever, if we feel like our business has never taken advantage of other people, it'd be pretty hard to say that nobody is culpable in a globalized world in any kind of a way. Um, there are certain colors of hands that pick all your vegetables or almost all of your wine. Like we're all somehow connected to this and there's a degree to where we can come forward and say, look, to God, to the degree that I'm complicit in this, forgive me. Open my eyes that I might see and enable me to walk more rightly so that I would not continue to be as complicit as maybe I once was in my ignorance. Why do we talk about this? Because we need to come back to it. Uh, the heart of the Bible is that there's a reaction to our injustice that is per perpetrated as we forget or neglect the commands of God. God's movement with us, his discipline with us, and even his push towards restoration is God's acting on our injustice that is perpetrated as we forget and neglect the commands of God. We tend to want to go towards morality because then those people are bad and we can judge them. When I grew up, it was Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the, the archetype of immorality. It was Sodom and Gomorrah, shorthand for immorality. Here's what Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Um, I'm running low on time, so I'll just read it rather than turn there. Ezekiel 16, 49. This is God speaking. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. What was the sin of Sodom? That she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. I would say, what was the sin of Chicago back in the 40s and the 50s? What was the sin of, of Bend when we had Japanese workers working potato fields that are over by where the Facebook and, and Apple things now reside, that plateau? 
and, and rioters came in and chased out those workers on horseback, threatening to put a noose around a juniper tree uh, to prove their point if, if they didn't flee. Um, what, is, what is the sin of these places? That we were overfed and unconcerned, did not help the poor and the needy, that we were haughty, uh, and we did this before the eyes of God. What was the sin of David and Bathsheba? We want to think that's morality. But when the, the prophet Nathan comes to, to judge David for this infidelity with Bathsheba, what he actually does is he, he gives him a parable about a rich man and a poor man and how the rich man stole from the poor man. Nathan's parable was one about justice. And justice is not apart from morality. It certainly includes it. But we can't really just coordinate off as these kind of private moral actions. It's tied up into the larger fabric, uh, fabric of God's justice in the ways uh, that he sees things. Why do we talk about race in the church? Because change only happens when the issue is pushed. Listen to me now. To this date... The South never took a step forward on the issue of race voluntarily. The South did, did not give up slavery voluntarily. The South did not give up Jim Crow and segregation voluntarily. Alabama is showing you that it won't allow anything to happen to that history voluntarily. There's a part to this where we have to speak up for refugees, for people that have a legacy or a history, for people who are still being judged or seen or evaluated based on um, the color of their skin. The prophets worked hard so that we would have a shared understanding of history. My understanding of history is never going to be 100% yours, especially if we come from different cultures, different ethnic backgrounds, certainly different colors. We're never going to have the same experience but we need to have a common, shared understanding, uh, understanding of history. What actually is our history? What actually is the full circle that includes all the voices, all of the experiences that make it broader and bigger and deeper and more real, but also probably more messy? Because when I have that picture of history, I can empathize. I don't just, just throw slogans at, political slogans at you that's meant to kind of discount your experience or that you might have a different view on politics than I do. We begin to be able to come together and actually have conversation. Why do we talk about race? Because change only happens when the issue is pushed um, and we need a shared understanding. I once went to a Christian college where they told me, I don't know that I was planning on using the phrase white privilege, but they told me that the president had banned that phrase from being used on their stage. And I thought, if we can't have deep and hard conversations at Christian academic institutions, how do we expect Christians to be able to navigate difficult conversations? And by the way, let's just get the white privilege thing out of the way. I once saw a female, uh, a white Caucasian female lecturer walked into a room like this, and here's how she did it. She said, um, to all of you who are white, if you wish you were treated the way America and, and society in America treats um, black or brown or colored people, um, then stand up. If you want to be treated the way that, that black people are treated in Mississippi, if you want to be treated the way Hispanics are treated in Arizona, if you want to be treated the way uh, that, that Middle Eastern people are treated in New York City, 
Uh, if you want to be treated in America the way black or brown people are treated, if you'd prefer that over the way you're treated, just stand up. And she paused and looked around the room and said, okay, that makes my job easier. We all already understand white privilege, so now we can move on and talk about it. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean you don't work hard. It doesn't mean that life hasn't treated you poorly. It doesn't mean anything. There are, there are some really hard-pressed white people in America, even more hard-pressed than maybe their friends who are black or brown. Or it, it doesn't mean that life is easy. It simply means that the color of your skin in this society for over 300 years has privileged you. Whereas other people, purely because of the color of their skin, have been disadvantaged correspondingly. Um, lastly, why do we need to be uh, talking about this in the church? Because bad data has to be replaced. Bad data has to be replaced. We get things given to us that we think are true and we hold on to them for decades. It used to be that we thought margarine was good. It was better than butter. Butter was going to give you a heart attack. We should use death on a stick, right? Um, and then eventually, we replace our knowledge. Um, my, my wife's father, my father-in-law, he used to think jello salad was salad. <laughs> and then over time, you realize that there's no vegetables in it. And you replace your knowledge, we have the same thing happening. We, we debunk myths with other things. We don't do it well with race. I still hear in this town everywhere, hey, the idea is just to be colorblind. Let's just be colorblind. This was the great thing in the, in the 90s and, and all that. Let's, let's just be colorblind. Um, O.J. Simpson was famous for this. I'm not black. I'm O.J. And um, real quickly... Um, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, says this. This is what the apostle John saw. Not what he heard, but what he saw. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What, what John saw was not black and white like, like, like old Leave it to Beaver TV. What John saw was in living color, the way God actually created things to bring about beauty in diversity, and that somehow all of these people with these different stories and these different languages could somehow find family in each other. Why? Because there's the love of God in their hearts. And they know that they are their brother's keeper. And they love each other. So much so that all those different languages sound like one chorus in praise to God. Colorblind, I have a, an Asian American friend who's writing a book and she says, what colorblind does to me is like if you went to a survivor of sex abuse and you came up and basically said, that's uncomfortable. 
that part of your story, that part of your history, that part of your experience, that's uncomfortable. Let's just agree to talk about all of your life except for that part. We'll, we'll find common ground and we'll have our relationship built here. When we go to people and say, look, I'm just going to cut your race and your color out and your experience and your pain and the distinctiveness of it and how that might have shaped you, I'm just going to cut that out because, you know, we got a lot of common ground over here, like sports or, or beer or, you know, let's just focus on that. It's offensive. We see people the way God made them and we dignify them. That means we see them in their color. We see them in the truth of their story. We see them in their pain and we see them in, in their joy. And we, we look to see ourselves in that as well and to understand ourselves kind of within this equation. Um, so I'll close on this. Uh, it's a phrase I think is important, but it's that the loss of privilege, the loss of privilege often feels like oppression, um, but it's not. The loss of privilege often feels like oppression. Losing things that we thought were going to happen in our life or that we've come to um, expect in our life as a dominant culture. The loss of that is not oppression. It's not the same as state-sponsored laws disadvantaging you because of your color. Um, and so I think we have to be able to understand that and name that. We can't debunk myths unless we name them. I think there's a, a parallel with the rich young ruler. Jesus named something. Um, go sell all you have. You don't, you're not going to lose the fact that you're a man in a man-dominated society or that you're young in a youth-dominated society or that you're a ruler, which is a title. Um, I just want you to give up the stuff and then come into pastoral training with me. And Jesus names that privilege that he was wanting to hold on to and, and the guy couldn't take it. When we just go as Christians and say, I want to love people, a lot of times it's like trying to pin jello to a tree. Like it's just too ethereal. We should have unity in the church. We should just love. And it's, it's jello. It's not until we put some kind of name to it. Um, we should have unity around race and really deal with the muck. That's now nailing it to a tree. We should love other people sacrificially in ways that they need and, and that we feel the suffering out, motivated by love as it goes to them. Now we can nail that to a tree. Um, we should, we should, when we name things, we can nail that sign to a tree. If we just use the, the kind of Christianese phrases, it's trying to, trying to nail jello to a tree and it's just never going to work. But then we feel good about ourselves because we used our language, our, our good Christian language, right? It's not quite the same. I say is going to come up. He's going to take us home. Ushers are going to come. Um, you can put the card in there. I'd love for you. I, I'm, we're hoping for 20, 25 people to join this missions community group if you will. But please keep this in mind. A shared understanding of history is central to reconciliation. And reconciliation is central to our conversation about the good news. Light fills the room, touches everything. God bless.